0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Hello and welcome to First Move. I'm Julian Chasley in New York. Fierce fighting and intense street battles again in eastern Ukraine. The nation's forces continue to defend the key city of Severodonetsk from Russian attacks. Ukrainian officials are saying the situation there is changing, quote, every hour. While in the Black Sea, the Navy says Russian ships have withdrawn more than 100 kilometers after its missile and drone attacks. Sama Abdelaziz joins us now from Kiev. Sama, good to have you with us. As we were hearing there, Ukrainian officials saying this is a moment-by-moment case. What's the latest and what are you hearing? Absolutely.
2: Severodonetsk now is really the flashpoint of that battle, uh, the larger goal, of course, that President Putin has of taking control of the Donbass region. Severodonetsk now at the heart of that matter. President Zelensky is saying that Ukrainian defenders are holding their ground, but he's conceding that this is an extremely difficult battle. Just last week, it looked like that city was on the verge of falling. Now Ukrainian forces appear to have been able to claw back territory, but Ukrainian officials saying that a simply incredible, amount of resources, Russian resources, firepower, artillery, troops being used to bomb and contain Severodonetsk and of course also the access road leading to that city as well. That means supply routes are tenuous at best and that means that for the over 10,000 civilians that we understand are still trapped in In that city, there seems to be, for now, no clear way out. And this is crucial, again, because of that larger goal. If you look at that map again, Severodonetsk right on the edge there of that push towards the West for Russian forces. It would be a major victory, a major gain if they're able to take it because that brings them one step closer to Kramatorsk, of course, the Ukrainian stronghold in that region of Luhansk. And I'm very quickly going to mention, Julia, here, the Black Sea, of course, because you mentioned that as well. Ukrainian forces saying they've been able to push back Russian warships by 100 kilometers, but already a counterattack in place by Russian forces. Uh, they say uh, Russian uh, uh Positions, Russian uh, cruise missile positions have been put into place in Russian-occupied territories in Kherson and Crimea. So there could be a push back there as well. That's important, of course, because the ports, uh, key among them, of course, the port of Odessa, are what supply grain, the breadbasket here of Ukraine, grain to the world. So this may ease this push of the Black Sea, pushing back these Russian forces in the Black Sea may ease that pressure on these ports, but there's also diplomatic efforts here to unblock this very key, key and strategic area which provides uh, really the bread the grain the supplies that the world needs julia
1: yes a great point sama great to have you with us so thank you for that sama abdelaziz there now, Russia has banned more American officials and media executives from entering the country in response, it says, to expanding sanctions by the United States. A judge in the United States has issued warrants to seize two private jets belonging to Russia's Roman Abramovich. Klaas Sebastian has all the latest on this. Claire, this is quite fascinating. So this is sanctions on assets of a non-US sanctioned individual. Not only, and you can explain where these, uh, these um, assets are, or these planes in this case are, but also the fact that the details were given of the actual entities that own them, which I think is an important um, exposure in financial sanctions too.
3: Yes. This is part of the sort of strategy of the United States, Julia. Transparency uh, is, is critical to sort of provide a deterrent uh, for, 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 for Russian oligarchs and other officials from trying to hide their assets. What's happened here is that, as you say, uh, Roman Abramovich is not, on the, is not personally on U.S. sanctions list. He is on U.K. and E.U. sanctions list. But this is related to other U.S. sanctions which prevent the export to Russia of planes and plane parts. This relates to two of his uh, planes, a Gulfstream, which is apparently now in Russia, uh, and a 787 Dreamliner, an enormous plane to be a private plane. It's, it's said to be one of the most expensive private planes in the world, worth about $350 million. That is now apparently in Dubai. Now those two facts mean that actual seizure is not guaranteed. This, these were warrants for seizure. Uh, obviously seizure itself depends on cooperation with the country where those planes are actually located. But, as you say, the other purpose for this was to to sort of show the U.S.'s commitment to enforcement, to provide this kind of transparency. I want to show you, actually, a a page from the affidavit that was published by the U.S. Justice Department to, to sort of back up this seizure. It actually shows a diagram of the the various shell companies that the doj says were, were involved uh, in in the ownership of these uh, these planes which all link back of course to roman abramovich so that's how they are trying to show their commitment to enforcement trying to convince other jurisdictions around the world to join in uh, and help them enforce these sanctions uh, as they say that this is just the beginning and more seizures are on the cards
1: Yes, and officials all over the world now quickly googling those entities to see what they can find as well, which, to your bigger point, is, um, is I think, part of the plan here, um, even if they never actually get their hands on these planes, of course, but it does restrict where they can travel to, too, particularly to US-friendly or those nations that have sank to Russian individuals as well. Uh, not only that, of course, it is a tit-for-tat in this regard. We saw the Russians announce yes. a whole host of names of Americans, including the likes of Janet Yellen, that are now no longer welcome in Russia. I'm not sure, at least for the foreseeable future, whether any of these individuals care about those restrictions. But they have extended to some individuals, including journalists living in Moscow. And I think in that case, perhaps, and in those cases, the pressure is very different.
3: Yeah, so two two different issues here. One, the the Russian counter sanctions. They've expanded their list. That w- they already had nine hundred and sixty three uh, U.S. Uh, individuals on on their so called stop list, preventing them from entry to Russia. They've now added another sixty one. Some very high ranking officials, as you say, Janet Yellen, the U.S. Treasury Secretary, Catherine uh, Catherine Tai, the the U.S. Trade Representative, heads of companies, airlines, ratings agencies, all kinds of different officials. Largely symbolic. It's simply to show that they can sort of return in kind, uh, the U.S. sanctions, but not going to have a huge impact on these people's lives. Also happening this week, though, Maria Zaharova, the the, uh, Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman, did summon U.S. journalists uh, in Moscow, uh, not so much for any potential violations of the very restrictive Russian laws uh, on on uh, on you know any kind of reporting around what they call their special military operation in Ukraine as you remember though they, they tightened those laws in March criminalized uh, various sort of what they call fake information around the conflict this was about the treatment she says of Russian journalists in the US who she says are being subject to various restrictions. She she says that these journalists need to put pressure on their management and their management needs to put pressure on the government to change that. Otherwise, they could be subject to the same restrictions in Russia. All of that together, of course, means that it is getting harder for foreign journalists to operate in Russia. Uh, She did threaten visa restrictions
1: and even expulsions, Julia. And to your point, it makes reporting on what's going on here and trying to educate people in particular uh, that much more difficult. Claire Sebastian, thank you. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson told ministers to draw a line, quote, under the Partygate scandal. He met with his government earlier today for the first time since narrowly surviving a no-confidence vote. He vowed to focus on the cost-of-living crisis and on Tory party values.
4: It's not enough just to spend money. You've got to spend it wisely. And we as Conservatives and Conservative ministers We've got to make sure that at every stage we are driving reform and driving value.
1: Bob Black joins us now, Phil. Actions speak louder than words. What else can we expect from a government that clearly does want to draw a line under this but now have an embattled leader, clearly, and questions will continue to be asked?
4: That's right, Julia, but really the only clear message from... Uh, Prime Minister Johnson from Downing Street today is that a line has been drawn, that this has been dealt with, that the Prime Minister has secured a comfortable, decisive, clear victory, or various adjectives to that effect, that shows he has, once again, a mandate uh, for governing. That is what uh, Prime Minister Johnson will hope this result leads to, the ability to focus on policy, to get back to governing, to deliver clear, achievable results to show a record of achievement that he can then lead the party to at the next scheduled election in about two years time. But he can't feel confident that that's how this is going to play out because what last night's vote also shows pretty clearly, objectively, mathematically, is that around 41 percent, of sitting Conservative MPs do not want him to be Prime Minister anymore, And that is a significant number, much more than many expected, a number that shows there is clearly a significant divide uh, in the party. And by way of strength of feeling, what that shows is that those 41 per cent were not just voting for him to leave, but they were voting for what that would mean, which would be a long, potentially messy Leadership contest without a clear contender uh, or a clear likely victor, without really knowing what you're going to get at the end end of that process or how electable the next leader would be, Uh, and indeed uh, without a, a, what they would be voting for is a, a period of unfocused, indecisive. Uh, leadership for the Conservative Party. So there's clear strength of feeling uh, there that isn't going to go away quickly, regardless of just how Boris Johnson uh, shifts to policy and tries to make that work for a period of time. That strength of feeling isn't going to go away, even though under existing Conservative Party rules, he is in theory clear from another challenge like this uh, for another year. Julia.
1: in th- In theory, because there are no rules that say that the rules can't change. Um, You know, it's interesting, to your point, about the the willingness of some of those MPs to roll the dice, given all the uncertainty, in order to remove Boris Johnson without knowing what comes next. And I just wonder, because we can quickly go back to 2018 and compare and contrast the mentality of Theresa May when she faced this situation and she survived too, and then within a year she, she was gone anyway, um, that feeling of perhaps being betrayed, of being backstabbed, of people hating you, of, of criticising you and not thinking you should be in the role, I just wonder, he's used to that, he's used to the controversy, he's used to the criticism, he's used to being, in English terms, marmite for some people, do you think he handles this moment perhaps better as a person and therefore as a leader? than she did. And you have about one minute to answer because I'm being shouted at for for taking too long.
4: (laughs) Well, he is, as you've kind of summed up there and touched on, often regarded as an unconventional politician, Mm -hmm. someone who can make mistakes, make controversial statements, things that would normally be really detrimental to an individual's political career, and yet somehow slip through the surrounding uh, controversy and pop out on the other side, often stronger than he was before. So... There is that. There is also the difference in circumstances, if you're comparing him to Theresa May back in 2018, when she, was, uh, when she faced a no-confidence vote. It was a policy issue. It was Brexit. It was very uh, specific back then. In this case, what appears to have angered so many MPs, Conservative MPs, are really fundamental things, like leadership and character and integrity and trustworthiness. These are not things that can easily be Uh, Polished over necessarily, and indeed, they are to some degree questions that have followed Boris Johnson throughout uh, his political uh, career. So it would seem that this dissatisfaction isn't going to go away because the people who have been motivated to vote against him have either done so on a point of principle. Or, no doubt, it's also based upon what they are hearing in their individual constituencies. They voted against him, it is very likely, at least in some cases, because they did not believe he was the Prime Minister, he was the leader of the party that would ensure ensure they win and hold on to their seats at the next election. Yeah,
1: critical questions for Black. Thank you. Let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Several Muslim countries are condemning controversial comments made by some officials from India's ruling party about the Prophet Muhammad. These countries have also summoned India's diplomatic representatives and demanded an apology. It's even led to India-made products being removed from stores in Kuwait. Vedika Sood joins us now. Vedika, there's a whole host of questions we could ask about this, but I want to set aside both the religious, I think, and the political. It's simply not the time, I think, for a country like India, the third largest importer of oil in the world, to be upsetting nations that provide, like the Middle East, two-thirds of those oil supplies. We can boil this down to basic economics, perhaps, their response.
5: Oh, absolutely, Julia, and that's perhaps the reason behind the Indian government currently being in damage control mode when it comes to the Gulf nations. You pointed that out correctly. Now, a bulk of India's energy imports comes from this region. Like you said, India is the third biggest uh, oil importer in the world, and 65% of its crude imports comes from this region. That's not all. You also have millions of Indians living and working in Gulf nations, Julia, and they send home remittances in billions of dollars. The UAE and India have signed a free deal agreement. You also have uh, the Indian Commerce Minister who recently said that Gulf Nations are planning to invest $100 billion in India in the manufacturing and infrastructure sector. A lot is at stake here, like you pointed out, Julia. This is not the time to really take off Gulf Nations and that is the attempt being made by the Indian government currently. And that's the reason why, for every response, for every statement made by be it Qatar or Kuwait, you've had the Indian government weigh in and they've made it amply clear that these remarks, these controversial remarks made by members of Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi's Hindu Nationalist Party, the BJP party, are remarks by individuals. They've even gone on to the extent of calling them fringe elements and they've said that this does not reflect the view or the outlook of the Indian government they're really hoping Julia that this controversy blows over but it's here to stay for now according to analysts the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi has always tried to keep a huge distance between his domestic political agenda and his ties with Muslim nations but this controversy Julia is here to stay for now Julia. yes
1: as you said we're in uh, absolute damage control I think uh, that's the upshot Great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. OK, in the United States, a Democratic senator says bipartisan talks on gun control laws are making progress, but they still have work to do before reaching a compromise. A Republican lawmaker signaled that their deal would not raise the minimum age required to buy semi-automatic weapons. Instead, they're focusing on expanding background checks on young people before they can purchase a gun. U.S. President Joe Biden will announce a new regional partnership when he hosts the Summit of the Americas on Wednesday, according to a senior administration official. There will be a few noticeable absences, however. The White House confirms Cuba, Nicaragua and Venezuela were not invited. And Mexico's president says he will not attend because of those exclusions. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here on First News. More to come. Welcome back. And it's a sluggish, tone, market tone in the United States and across much of Europe. U.S. stocks set for a pullback, as you can see, after a modest rally on Monday. It's the Nasdaq once again, the tech heavy Nasdaq underperforming. Retailer Target, meanwhile, adding to the cautious mood, falling more than 7 percent, as you can see there, pre-market. After warning of a profit hit due to rising prices and weaker consumer spending. This is Target's second profit warning in less than a month. And global banks remain on high price alert To The Australian central bank raising rates by a surprising half a percent today. It's actually the biggest hike in more than 20 years. The European central bank, meantime, expected to move closer to raising rates as its meeting on Thursday with a half a point hike, so half a percentage point hike possible next month too. And rate expectations are putting increased pressure on global bond yields and, of course, renewed strength in the U.S. dollar benchmark U.S. 10 year yields lower today, but still above that key 3 percent level. German bond yields, meanwhile, have hit their highest level in eight years. And rising oil prices remain a leading global cause of inflationary pressures too. U.S. gasoline prices have hit daily records just as the peak summer driving season in the United States gets underway and leading to a blame game over just who is responsible. U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is focusing squarely on big oil.
6: The price of gasoline is is not set by a dial in the Oval Office, and when an oil company is deciding, hour by hour, how much to charge you for a gallon of gas, uh, they're not calling the administration to ask what they should do. Uh, They're doing it based on their goal of maximizing their profits.
1: Meanwhile, the oil industry faults the Biden administration for refusing to incentivize new drilling amid what it sees as a myopic focus on renewable energy and the climate. Just yesterday, the Biden administration invoked a wartime instrument called the Defense Production Act and waived tariffs to promote domestic solar panel production and other clean energy technologies. Meanwhile, the oil and gas industry faces output constraints of its own. Nearly 60% of public oil and gas producers surveyed by the Dallas Fed say they are restricting output because investors are laser-focused on controlling spending. There's lots going on. Good news. Mike Summers joins me now. He's the president and CEO of the American Petroleum Institute. Mike, always great to chat to you. What do you make of that? What the U.S. Transport Secretary said. Is the industry profiting from consumer pain?
7: Well, I think the one thing that uh, people need to know is that this industry is really a price taker, not a price maker in these markets. Uh, The price of oil is set, of course, by world markets, not by uh, one particular oil producer. And I do think the secretary gets one big thing wrong. While, of course, the president doesn't have a dial on what the price of oil should be, the president does set a tone and the president does set policies. And the policies this administration have put in place have restricted the production of oil and natural gas in the United States. And the tone that they put forward at the beginning of this administration, where they advanced that this industry would be over by the year 2035, certainly set a tone for that kind of investment that this industry needs to grow and thrive in the United States and throughout the world.
1: Yeah, we'll come back to policy because this is an important step and it's sort of loosely tied to it. The UK government just announced a 25 percent windfall tax on some of the big energy giants with an ability to offset the payments that they have to make if they invest in, in capital expenditures. BP, I know in particular, said it would review its investment plans as a result. And I believe the Biden administration is now considering something similar, this windfall tax with potential offsets. Mike, is the industry in favour of that?
7: I can't think of a worse idea, actually. Uh, In fact, uh, the United States actually tried a windfall profits tax in the 1970s. And what happened was oil production went down in the United States and prices went up on American consumers. This is a terrible uh, idea and terrible economics to boot. In fact, every policy that we've seen over the course of the last uh, many months from this administration and from others has been uh, policies that are actually going to restrict production uh, throughout the world. So first, they turned to uh, the so-called NOPEC legislation that would lead to less oil on the markets. Then they they, uh, talked about price gouging, which, of course, that hasn't occurred in the United States. And study after study shows that there's not price gouging going on in the United States. And now they're turning to a windfall profits tax, which would lead to less energy. We need policies that advance energy, more oil and gas to give some give consumers some relief at the pump.
1: I can see an inconsistency here. And you can tell me, has the oil industry been approached by the Biden administration and said, hey, we need you to increase refining capacity. We we need you to, in the short term, at least pump up production, because I can see a, a lack of consistency between the policies that promote renewable energies and say, look, the fossil fuel industry is going to be over by 2030, over by 2035. 20, uh, but then at the same time saying, look, we need you to pump money and investment in the short term. That doesn't work. It doesn't work for, for shareholders. It doesn't work for investors. Are they being approached like that by the Biden administration? And is that message being being given to them that these things don't don't work?
7: Well, we have an open line of communication with the administration and we consistently tell them that their policies are going in the opposite direction that they should be going in terms of incentivizing more production here in the United States. But uh, we have not been asked for you know meetings with the White House. Uh, in fact, you know I, we've, we would welcome the opportunity to speak to the president about some of these policies that we think would work to advance long term investment in oil and gas, which is to the benefit of American consumers and certainly American energy security. What we're seeing going on in Europe today is what happens when a continent decides to transition too quickly. And we wanna make sure that the United States does not find itself in the exact same predicament that Europe finds itself in, where they were dependent on a hostile neighbor for their energy supply. Fortunately, the United States is here. The United States is going to be producing about 13 million barrels of oil every single day by 2023. uh, And we're gonna continue to invest uh, in this industry. Uh, But it's not the time for us to be uh, closing off this industry or talking about shutting down this industry when the world's going to need American producers to step up during this time of an energy crisis.
1: Mike, how do you feel about Biden heading over to the Saudis and talking to the Saudis at this moment?
7: Look, we we operate in a world market for oil and gas. We need all producers to be at the table. But I think it's a little disappointing that uh, the president has decided to go to Saudi rather than go to the Permian Basin in Texas, the most prolific oil field in the world right now, where American producers are producing oil and gas for American consumers with American workers. Uh, And I, I think that that's where the focus of this administration should be on American made energy here in the United States.
1: So you're saying it's more bad policy?
7: Well, I I just think that there are real opportunities for us to use resources here in the United States rather than be dependent on foreign nations for their oil. Uh, But, of course, we operate in a world market and uh, we need to be be cooperating with our energy partners as well.
1: And something that you said before, and I had to choose where I took you. You talked about transition and you said the transition's happening too quickly because at least in the interim, and you and I have talked about this before, unfortunately you need, or fortunately you need dirtier forms of energy, be it gas, be it oil, whether you like it or not, before we transition to a future that perhaps looks more, um, more climate friendly, if that's how you choose to look at it. Can current policy and ramping up production in the short term be consistent with a transition to net zero, Mike, because I think that's the question everybody needs to be asking at this moment.
7: Well, the truth of the matter is, is what I'm advocating for is actually a policy that President Obama advocated for when he was president of the United States, which is an all of the above strategy that advances all forms of energy to ensure that American consumers and world consumers have access to safe, reliable and affordable energy going forward. The truth of the matter is, is that the most important thing that we could do to address climate concerns is to replace coal with American made natural gas. That is the best thing that we could do to advance climate change concerns throughout the world. The other point that I would make is, I I take issue with the term energy transition because the truth of the matter is, is that the world has been transitioning energy uh, for decades and decades and decades. And uh, the fact of the matter is, is that most of the time that those transitions aren't transitions at all, they're actually energy additions. We still use, you know, more coal today than we did in the 1960s. So we're going to need more energy in the marketplace, not less energy, particularly as the world grows by 2 billion people by 2050. And the world consumes about 50 percent more energy by 2050 than we are today. We need all forms of energy, and that includes oil and gas.
1: Mike, very quickly, I have 30 seconds Record profits for oil companies, that's a fact. Record high gas prices for American consumers, also a fact. How do you tell consumers that there's nothing that those oil majors can do to perhaps ease the pressure? You can explain perhaps better than me.
7: This industry is investing at levels that we haven't seen since the pre-pandemic pandemic to ensure that we have safe and reliable energy for American consumers. But we're also dealing with the same factors that American consumers are dealing with, with supply shortages and hiked prices for steel and concrete and for frack sand, which is necessary for the discovery of new oil resources. So we're doing everything that we can to ensure that American consumers have access to this energy uh, that they're going to need uh, to power our economy going forward.
1: Am I good to chat to you? Mike Summers the president and CEO of the American Petroleum Institute. We'll speak soon. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. And the opening bell has sounded on Wall Street this Tuesday. U.S. stocks weaker as expected in early trade. A profit warning from retailer Target weighing on sentiment, a further sign that inflationary pressures continue to weigh on corporate results. Twitter shares also under pressure in early trade after a volatile Monday that saw shares fall some one and a half percent. The shares under pressure as Elon Musk threatens to walk away from his commitment to buy the social media firm over the issue of fake bot accounts. Musk says Twitter is not leveling with him over the issue and is breaching their purchase agreement. Twitter insists it's doing all it can to work with Musk on the issue. I think the uh, lack of reaction, quite frankly, to that is perhaps more telling than anything else. In China, meanwhile, tech stocks continued a relief rally on hopes Beijing is set to end a period of intense scrutiny on the sector. Wide-hailing giant Diddy adding to a near 25% gain Monday here in New York. It's part of an effort, I think, to regalvanize growth after months of strict COVID lockdowns. However, just days after those restrictions were relaxed, parts of Shanghai are now faced with entering lockdown once more. Selena Wang, is in Beijing for us, Lena. Great to have you with us. Can you give us some context on numbers? Because the headlines on this seem frightening for those that have just got out of lockdown, perhaps going back into it. How many people, what kind of scale are we talking about?
8: Yeah, Julia, a lot of residents are telling me that it just feels like this endless, unending cycle just days after Shanghai finally exited that Brutal two month lockdown. You have multiple communities going back into lockdown because new COVID cases have been found. We're talking small numbers of daily new COVID cases here, a handful, I mean three or four, but still the implications of that are entire communities back in 14 days of lockdown. For the rest of Shanghai, most of the city's 25 million people, though, they are able to freely move in and out of their communities, go back to work, take public transportation, re enter shops, but still nearly two million residents never got that freedom in the first place because they had recent COVID cases in their communities. Across China, anybody who tests positive, along with their close contacts, are sent to quarantine facilities and the entire community, or in some cases, the entire city, then goes back into lockdown. So people remain terrified of getting COVID because of the implications of what it means to test positive. Now, the Tech rally you talked about that does reflect the broader turn in sentiment for investors here who are pricing in that the worst of China's latest COVID lockdown is over. But still, zero COVID is not going anywhere. So there are a lot of risk factors to that rebound. You're going to have continual lockdowns. And continual disruptions to supply chains, to manufacturing, to people's lives. Here in Beijing as well, just this week, the city has started to relax more restrictions, public venues reopening, more people taking public transport, returning to the office. And for the first time after a month long ban, people can finally dine inside restaurants. But our lives here are still very much restricted by COVID testing and health tracking apps. In Beijing and Shanghai, we've got to get a COVID test once every three days in order to enter any public venues. And the lines are very long. I stood in line for more than an hour today to get my negative COVID test. And we've got to scan our health code multiple times a day to get into any of those public venues. Those health apps are able to track where we've been to quickly contact trace and find us if we've been in close contact with anyone. And while the COVID cases in China have come down significantly, just reporting over 120 COVID cases nationwide, there are still clusters of outbreaks that are leading to severe consequences. For instance, a city in Inner Mongolia just going into lockdown because of a cluster of around 70 COVID cases. So a return to normalcy, not exactly, but about as normal as you can get in zero COVID China. Julia
1: about as normal as you can get. It's fascinating. I just wonder what it means for consumer spending, for t- particularly for people who've lost wages through this period. If you're afraid of going back into lockdown, does it mean that you're still going to be very cautious, at least for the next few months? It's an interesting question. We'll come back to it. Selena Wang, great to have you with us. Thank you. Now, as China transitions out of lockdown, ports around the world are preparing for a potential surge in cargo. The Port of Los Angeles is one of the world's busiest seaports and handles 16% of America's cargo. Its biggest international partner last year was China. The port's executive director says imports fell nearly 7% in April, allowing it to prepare for an uptick in shipments. Gene Sirocco is executive director of the Port of Los Angeles and he joins us now. Gene, fantastic to have you with us. You have one of the best, I think, early indicators, both of the lockdowns that China went into, but also we hope the economic wake up as well and what it will mean for trade. What's your sense? Because I've been surprised as I look at your numbers about the lack of impact of lockdown.
9: That's right. And good morning, Julia. We've been keeping up with this now into the 11th week of the lockdown in Shanghai and surrounding areas. And we've seen no precipitous drop in cargo volume. The folks in China, specifically the central government and the ports have prioritized that cargo, including the Trans-Pacific runs here to Los Angeles and Southern California. Cargo volume output has been very steady from central China, although there have been impacts on the ground at the subassembly manufacturing, and land transport areas. Barge traffic along the Yangtze River is up and neighboring port of Ningbo's cargo throughput is up 25% during this lockdown to help pick up some of the slack.
1: Is that in both directions, Jean? I appreciate, obviously, you only look at what's going on in, in, in your port, but it's interesting that you say that the, the Chinese have done their best to protect what they're exporting and to get those flows and allow those flows to continue. Do you have a sense of whether that's ha- happened in both directions?
9: As you can imagine, with all of this cargo flowing, the lockdowns and all the other variables in the supply chain equation, it's taking cargo a little bit longer to leave the port of Shanghai to go inland in China, exports from the U.S., Europe and other Asia countries. There are hundreds of ships outside the port of Shanghai in the East China Sea. A lot of that is inter-Asia trade, the largest trade in the world. And again, as the cargo continues to flow through these ports, delays are to be expected. But the folks on the ground are managing this very well.
1: I think you've answered my question already. So in terms of uh, a Shanghai surge, what are you expecting? Can you put any kind of numbers on it? Because I assume June would have traditionally been a strong month for for inflows into the United States anyway.
9: Once again, a number of layers to consider. First, Mm. Here in the United States, importers are bringing in cargo earlier than normal for traditional retail peak seasons. We've stated now all the indications are cargo for that peak season will start landing at the end of this month. We're also in the midst of bringing in back to school products, fashion and fall fashion coming up here all combined at the same time. Now, as China opens up, please remember, not every factory was closed. Not every company had to be shut down. But we will more than likely see some of our factories and land transport companies trying to play catch up on those purchase orders, get them out the door and into the American, European and Southeast Asian markets. There'll be an uptick, but not as dramatic as some of the observers is called for.
1: Yeah, because I've seen some pretty dramatic estimates. So it's interesting to get your uh, your context on this. What's the situation for you? Because obviously, again, we loosely talk about the supply chain issues. But again, you, you cut to the heart of it, whether it's waiting for those ships to be able to dock, unloading the containers, and then actually the the rail connections and the road connections requiring truckers, for example, and drivers in order to get those products where they're headed. What's the, the sort of lead lag time now that we're looking at, Jean? And can you give us a sense of of the point upon which you're estimating at this stage, perhaps everything will get back to to pre-pandemic levels. I appreciate that's a tough question.
9: Yeah, that's still gonna be some time, Mm -hmm. Julia, into probably the second half of 2023. But in the meantime, the here and now, we've made tremendous progress. Back in January, we had 109 container ships waiting to enter the ports of Long Beach and Los Angeles. That number is down below 30 overnight. The speed by which the cargo is being unloaded is now best in class once again. We're also seeing the flow of cargo improving on our docks, going out into the domestic economy here in the United States with those wait times of containers starting to come down in noticeable levels. We had our best first quarter on record, second best April ever, and when we announce our May numbers this Friday, they will be sensational still there's much more work to do we've got to make better use of our truck gates the amount of time that it takes for truckers to come in get their cargo and move out second we've seen a six-fold increase in the amount of rail cargo coming in via our container ships we've got to catch up on that and both western railroads the union pacific and burlington northern santa fe are working all out to bring that number of containers down and get them into the interior of the country.
1: Yeah, I mean I know your people are working incredibly hard and have been now for uh, for a long while. How tough is it to hire? I know you're in negotiations with the with the unions now who are clearly saying, "Hey, you know, we want more money." That's something that we're seeing all over the world, not just in the United States, but how much of a challenge is is hiring at this moment and the demands that you're getting in terms of, of the pay required to get people in the door?
9: Oh, we're we're not immune to uh, the mm. the travails in the employment sector. Eleven point four million jobs open in the United States. Similar here in the supply chain, our dock workers of the International Longshore and Warehouse Union everyone who wants work has it, and I could argue we need more folks on that job. They are in the midst of collective bargaining between the Employers Association and the union. That's ongoing. We need to attract, recruit, and retain better as an industry in the areas of port truck driving, and warehousing. These are the, the locations where we've really got to step up and make sure that we can bring people into these jobs to handle the flow of cargo on a regular basis. Many folks left for different parts of transportation, different sectors altogether. We've Got to bring folks into these two areas. We boast more than two billion square feet, 200 million square meters of warehousing from the shores of the Pacific out to the desert region of Southern California. It's the largest in the world and deserves strong emphasis from a talent development standpoint.
1: Absolutely. Sounds like good news for workers if you have to pay them more to incentivize them. Um, Jean, the challenges continue. Thank you for the work you and your team are doing. Great to chat to you. Jean Soroka there, Executive Director of the Port of Los Angeles. Okay, now here's an example of a supply chain crunch, whichever way you slice it. In Australia, KFC is warning consumers it will have to add cabbage some of its products because of a lettuce shortage. The fast food giant's blaming recent floods with lettuce prices up 300% in recent months. But the company says if you don't like cabbage, you can opt out. Yeah, after the break, the controversial, sadly-backed golf tour kicks off this week in London. Find out which pro golfers are teeing up and why the PGA is not so happy. Stay with us next. Welcome back. Power plays in the world of golf. American golfer Dustin Johnson says he's resigning from the PGA in order to play for Saudi-backed live golf series. And champion Phil Mickelson is breaking his hiatus to jump on board as well. Mickelson previously criticised Saudi Arabia for its human rights record, but said he'd look past the abuses if their tour gave him leverage over the PGA. World Sports' Alex Thomas joins me now. Oh, Alex, there is everything in this story. Money, politics, plenty of controversy, which we can talk about too. But perhaps it's as much about who is joining this Saudi-backed series as who isn't, quite frankly, and the what? up to a billion dollars that Tiger Woods was perhaps offered to lure him in. and he yeah, Maybe not, not quite that much, uh, <laughs> yeah, Julia. but certainly a, a Washington guessing. Post report
6: <laughs> said that the Live Golf CEO, Greg Norman, admitted to them that they'd given him a high nine-figure sum to join. Uh, and if that's true, then it's fair to assume that Dustin Johnson and Phil Mickelson, the biggest stars to sign up so far, are getting more for signing up for a year of Live Golf or even just this tournament alone that starts on Thursday than they have done in their entire careers or indeed that Tiger Woods has earned in his entire career on the PGA Tour. So that shows that it's not just about more money, it's about jaw-droppingly large sums of money, all backed by Saudi Arabia, their public investment fund, of course, and all the controversy that goes with that. Let's have a listen to Justin Johnson. He's definitely the most high-profile name to join so far, just because of his age, really. He's 37, still at his peak for a golfer, and world number one as recently as last year. This is what he said at the Centurion Club just outside London earlier today.
8: Obviously, at this time, it's you know it's hard to speak on what the consequences will be. But you know, for right now, um, you know I resign my membership from the tour. I'm I'm going to play here, um, you know, for now, and that's that's the plan. Um, you know, but what the consequences are going to be, I obviously I can't comment on how the tour is going to handle. Again, I, I can't answer for for the majors, but you know, hopefully they're going to allow us to play. Obviously, I'm exempt for for the majors, so. Um, I plan on playing there.
6: Johnson the latest to actually quit the PGA Tour, Julia, because that avoids any chances of any sanctions whatsoever. He still expects to be able to play in the majors, which are run slightly separately to the regular tour events throughout the year, a bit like in tennis and their Grand Slam events. And any legal challenges that come up, will, of course, be met by all the billions of dollars uh, behind Golf. So it could fundamentally change the way professional men's golf is played. Why are players taking the risk at all? Well, it's obvious, really. They're earning far more money to play far fewer events, so less travel, no halfway cuts. And it means, as well, that there are only 54 holes to be played, so they're playing less golf, getting much more. Johnson saying at another stage in that press conference that he doesn't want to play golf his entire life. It'd be quite nice to just rake it in over the next few years, and then focus on something else with him and his family.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think Tiger Woods said uh, the idea was polarizing, but to your point, I think it's an interesting one. Perhaps you go here to semi-retire and move on and um, sort of split the difference, who knows? Nice if you can get it, Alex Thomas. Great to have you with us, thank you. All right, up next, the same money for fewer hours. Thousands of workers try out a four-day work week at full pay, that's next. Welcome back to First Move. And just breaking, the World Bank has announced that it's lowering its global economic growth forecast once again, due in part to China's COVID lockdowns and the war in Ukraine. The World Bank now seeing growth of 2.9 percent this year, much lower than the 4.1 percent rate it projected back in January. The World Bank says recessions in many countries will be hard to avoid and said the world faces a, quote, protracted period of feeble growth and elevated inflation. In other words, stagflation. Now, there are a few things better than a four-day weekend, as the Brits, of course, just enjoyed. But a four-day work week might be one of them. Thousands of workers have begun the world's biggest trial in cutting working hours without cutting pay. Rahel Solomon joins me now. So this is effectively a 20% pay increase, then, if you're only working four days a week. Where do I sign, Rahel? Tell me. Tell, tell us Well,
10: Julia, it might be a while before you and I get that option. But like for 33,
5: never.
10: <laughs> exactly. But for 3,300 people in the UK, yes, they are embarking on this largest trial we have seen uh, as of yet for this four-day work week. Here's how it's going to work. It's for six months. It's 70 companies across the UK and really across industries, companies uh, in retail, in healthcare, um, in financial services, in banks. So again, six months. But here's the deal, Julia. It's 100% of your pay, but for 80% of the work week, but 100% of the productivity. So the question is, can workers work smarter as opposed to harder? And- Presumably, if we saw this option, folks would be cheering like these folks on your screen right here on the left. So there have been studies before uh, in places like New Zealand where they have looked uh, at the efficacy of a four day work week. And the producers of the study say that they saw increased productivity in New Zealand. They saw uh, increased well-being, also recruitment. Couldn't that be good uh, for some of the American companies who are struggling to find workers? Uh, And look. Critics say, however, that if you pull back hours, for example, to 35 from 40 Julia, it becomes a lot harder to move it back up to 37, even if it is still a net decrease. So that's sort of one of the the concerns among some companies that, look, if you go in that direction, it's going to be really hard to go any bit closer to 40. But the. The results are clear that it increases productivity in some studies. And I think there, there would be a lot of support among employees for this type of idea.
1: Sounds like a gimmick to me. I have to say it. <laughs> Rahul, great to have you. Do you know what I'm thinking? I wish I'd taken up golf as a child. Golf? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't know what I'm talking about. My viewers do. Raoul Solomon, thank you for that. <laughs> and finally, clear out those drawers of mystery cables because the European Union is officially adopting a common charger the USB-C. Apple is required to adapt its products by late 2024. It's reportedly already testing the port in iPhones. I'm very happy about this. Just yesterday, Apple unveiled iOS 16, which was also bringing in sweeping changes to devices. Those of us who often send embarrassing typos can finally rest easy. The new operating system will let iMessages be edited or recalled all together. Yes, one or two of those in my life. That's it for the show. Connect the World with Becky Anderson. It's up next. I'll see you tomorrow.